But today we start in Luke chapter 4. Last week we finished, we concluded with a mini-series that we called Temptation. And this was a study from Luke 4 on the temptations of Jesus by Satan that have been recorded for us in this very gospel. And all three of these temptations we know were designed by Satan in the hope of getting Jesus to fail with the mission that he had set out to do. And if you missed the series or any three of the the sermons, you can listen to them on our website under the resource tab, under the sermon tab. So please visit newlifechurch.ae to catch up with those sermons. Um, All the the study guides are included in in that page, so make sure you visit that as well. But today we look at the background of the Lord's teaching at the synagogue in Nazareth. And of course, the strange response and the misconceptions of the people of Nazareth towards Jesus. So we're going to read this morning from Luke 4, from verse 14 down to verse 30. If you would follow with me in your Bibles. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of, the sight, of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were, many widows, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was set to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray before we study God's Word together. Lord, we... Thankful that you have recorded for us your life here on earth. We are grateful, Lord, that we get to see how you walked amongst us, how you lived amongst us, and even how you struggled 
and how you faced persecution and how you faced opposition. But Lord, we're thankful that we can see, Lord, that amongst all of this, you were sinless and you were perfect in all your responses. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word today, that we would see your response and the response of the, the people and we would understand our nature compared to your nature. And Lord, that we would cling to the cross this morning, that we would be pointed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray your spirit would open our eyes, would open our ears and help us to understand these teachings. Help us to understand our need for a perfect Savior, that you would be glorified in our response this morning. So be with us, Lord, we ask. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Last weekend, Kerry and I attended a conference in Dubai, which was hosted by Redeemer Church and Acts 29. Um, the conference was called Advance Initiative. Um, the aim of this conference was to help generate discussion amongst ordinary Christians and, and church members from the, the Indian communities, and of course those close to them, and how the Lord could use the Indian community and gospel multiplication in, in Indian cultures for the purpose of church planting. Um, and it was at this conference that Kerry and I were asked uh, by different types of people there about our ministry in India. And they asked us specifically, where did our greatest opposition come from? Um, and without hesitation, both Kerry and I answered in, this, in similar ways. Our greatest opposition, sadly, came from the Christian community. Not from the, the Hindus, not from the Muslims, but from the Christians. Uh, it was professing Christians who, who wrote letters to the police superintendent to complain about our ministry, accusing us of forcefully converting people. And then it was professing Christians who eventually laid charges against me um, so that I was detained and investigated by the police. And the charge that they laid was similar in that they claimed I was forcefully converting people as well as torturing Christians with um, church discipline. It was a difficult time for us. It was a very hurtful time, especially because the opposition was coming from people that we knew, people that we, we cared for. Uh, people who had fallen into sin and who we were trying to help them to restore them back to the Lord. Uh, people that we trusted and who we considered as, as friends. Now, I'm not passing judgment on the eternal destiny of these people. God alone, He knows their, their hearts. But I'm simply illustrating what even the Lord Jesus experienced in His ministry. That most opposition comes from the religious crowds, not from the outside, but from the inside. And we need to take it to heart that most of us are religious people because we're here in church today listening to the sermon, isn't it? But being religious does not guarantee that we will accept Jesus Christ. Being religious does not guarantee that we would even go to heaven. It was religious crowds in Nazareth that not only reacted against Jesus' sermon, they went right from the, the church service to try and shove the speaker off a cliff. And I trust that no one here would do that this morning, but still we, we need to be careful to examine our own hearts so that we do not 
imitate the religious people of Nazareth in their hostile rejection of Jesus Christ. And Luke begins his treatment of Jesus' ministry with the account of his visit to his hometown. Remember, Jesus is from Nazareth, where at first he was, he was acclaimed by the people, he was welcomed, but then he was strongly rejected. My first point this morning is in verse 14 and verse 15. Jesus preaching and Jesus' popularity. Verse 14 and verse 15 are a very concise summary of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and its impact. Our Lord did not appear at the synagogue in Nazareth immediately after His baptism and temptation. Actually, an, almost a year has passed since our Lord was first presented to Israel as the Messiah at His, at his baptism. Our Lord's ministry in Galilee resulted in growing popularity, and the people of Nazareth had heard the reports of His preaching and His power, and they were eager to see what He could do in their midst. Look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogue, being glorified by all. Being glorified by all, that means being made much of by all. Jesus was being made much of by His hometown. And as reported here by Luke in his verses, our Lord's ministry in Galilee had been in the power of the, the Spirit. So there was definitely something unique about Jesus. There was definitely something that people could not ignore about Jesus. And I, my assumption is that a number of miracles had already been done by Jesus during this, this year period. Um, we, they're not mentioned for us. Um, they're mentioned in the other Gospels. But I think there were, they, they were many. But they're not emphasized here. They're not emphasized the miracles that Jesus did in His first year. What is emphasized by Luke is the preaching ministry of our Lord Jesus here in Galilee. And His prominence and His popularity which resulted from his, his powerful preaching. And we see reports of our Lord's ministry reached the people of Nazareth, his hometown where he was from. Even before he got there, he was popular. And when he finally arrived, you can imagine the level of anticipation and the level of excitement was, was fairly high. And verse 15 tells us that, that Jesus taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. My second point, Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled. We see this in verse 16 to verse 21. But look there in verse 16. It starts with, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So probably at this point, the people of Nazareth were proud of their hometown boy who was becoming quite famous. And as was his custom, Jesus went to the, the synagogue on the Sabbath day, we see there in verse 16. And of course, this was the synagogue where he had attended his entire life. Now, every Sabbath day, Jesus was in worship at the synagogue, no doubt. And Jesus maintained a, a regular pattern of worship. This was his custom. And Jesus would sing the Psalms. Jesus would listen to the Word of God, and Jesus would pray to His Heavenly Father. I think there's a wonderful application here, a very simple one. If going to 
the worship service every week was, was Jesus' custom, then surely it should be ours as well, isn't it? I doubt that Jesus ever missed a single worship service. Weekly worship attendance is the foundation of any life that, that glorifies God. And on this particular Sabbath day, Jesus was asked to read the scriptures for that day. And the synagogue ruler could invite any visiting teacher or qualified male to, to read the scriptures. And of course, Jesus knew almost everyone in the synagogue that day. He had started his public ministry about a year earlier, and his ministry, of course, was, was astounding people. They had never heard such teaching or even seen such miracles. So there was tremendous excitement when their hometown hero had come back and was about to read and expound the, the Scripture. I mean, try and imagine, the Lord now stands up and He reads the scroll containing the, the prophecy of Isaiah which was handed to Him. Whether or not he was, uh, it was requested, the scroll, to be read, we're not sure, it's not stated. But He turns to the text in Isaiah where the words are written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We read these words in Isaiah 61 earlier on, didn't we? This quote is directly from Isaiah 61, and there's a portion also from Isaiah 58 combined as Jesus is quoting these verses. And I don't think Jesus only read these verses. I think he, he read many more of the verses. Um, I would imagine that Luke has recorded only these words because these verses contain the, the very heart of the text that, that Jesus was expounding. And we know that Jesus taught. It tells us, isn't it, in verse 22, that he began to speak. So he's expounding these words. He's expounding and teaching what the, the, the prophet Isaiah was, was saying. And Luke states that clearly Jesus began to speak. And the people mention there in verse 22, the gracious words which were falling from his mouth. Of course, this implies that he had so much more to, to say, isn't it? The essence of these words, along with the statement of our Lord, is that the Messiah has come. He was a very eloquent speaker, very powerful speaker. But the key that he was speaking here, the, the whole theme of his message, the core of his word to the people, was that the Messiah has come. Now, up to the, this point, the initial response to Jesus' sermon was, was favorable. I think it was superficial, but they were just being kind at this point, and they were speaking well of him, and they were amazed at his smooth manner in, in which he communicated. But as sermon critics, they were giving the hometown kid good marks on his delivery and, and his style. Not bad, I can see why we've been hearing good reports about this young man. He's a, he's a polished speaker, some would say. But it wasn't long until the, the nodding heads began to stop. And the proving smiles turned to frowns. 
especially when Jesus concludes, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, people, I am the Messiah. I am the man that God has sent to do this. I will do this. I can set captives free. I can give sight to the blind. I can bring relief to the oppressed. I can bring help to the poor. Now Jesus is saying very clearly here, I am the one. I am the anointed one. In other words, Jesus is saying very clearly here that I am the Messiah. If you have friends who try and tell you that nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say that he is God, take them to Luke chapter 4, please, verse 21. Thank you. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. He's telling the people here, you have been waiting for 600 years to see the restoration of the line of David and the flourishing kingdom of God. I have come here to do this. Now try and imagine the response of the people. Of course, their first response is, is one of astonishment. They are blown away. And here we see their question in the next verse. My next point in verse 22. The question. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? There's the question. Is not this Joseph's son? They didn't ask, is this the Messiah? They asked, is this not Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's boy? I mean, I remember him playing with my kids when, when he was growing up. Isn't this Joseph's son? Initially, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. We see that in verse 22. There were no objections. There was no resistance and apparently not even any hesitancy. Their first impression of Jesus' message was favorable. But I think the crowd's response also reveals some confusion here. I don't think they fully understood what Jesus was saying. And I can almost see two members of the congregation which had gathered there together at the synagogue whispering to each other. You know, what one might have said, wasn't that a glorious message? To which the other person might have re responded, yes, I think so, but, but what did he mean? What did he mean? Now, the King James Version uses the word wondered instead of marveled. This is not a contradiction. Wonder and marvel and admire are from the same Greek word. So we get a fuller picture here, don't we, of what the people are, are saying. They admired and they wondered all at the, the same time. But I think it's important to note that the warm response to Jesus' word was the result of a distorted concept of the Messiah and his ministry. I believe that the people had all these fantastic ideas of what Jesus would do for them or what the Messiah would do for them. In my opinion, they may have looked at the fact that, you know, Jesus was a hometown boy, the son of Joseph, and, 
and expected him to do even greater things for them than he had done elsewhere. And after all, wasn't Jesus one of their own? Surely he should do more there for them than he has done anywhere else. They had almost, in a sense, given Jesus the, the key of, of the city. And of course, now they expected great things of him. And he knew this. Jesus knew what was going on inside of their hearts. And once Jesus' words sank into their minds, they couldn't fathom, they couldn't understand how he could possibly claim to be the Messiah. This is just Joseph's son. He cannot be the Messiah, surely. Now remember, they believed that the Messiah would be somebody who would deliver them from these Roman oppressors, that he would be riding on a white horse with a huge army behind him. And from their, their scriptures, they, they thought that the Messiah would be unknown to anybody and that he would suddenly appear to redeem Israel. That, that was their distorted view of, of their scriptures. So how in the world could this hometown boy, whom they had all known since he was a toddler, be the Messiah? That was their confusion. That was the question that was in their minds. And that leads to my fourth point, the misconceptions. We see that in verse 23 to verse 27. You see here, Jesus continues to speak. He knew these people very well also because he also come from that town, isn't it? He knew what they were thinking and, and what they were whispering to each other. So Jesus gave three applications here to his, his message. Look there in verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the, all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Well, the first application was a proverb we see there in verse 23. Jesus says, well, you, you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. In other words, prove your claim to us. That's what Jesus is, is saying in that proverb. You are saying to yourselves that I must prove myself to you. Jesus knew that this audience wanted him to prove that he was the Messiah by, by revealing his power to them, maybe by doing some great signs or doing some great miracles. They had heard of the miracle he had done in Capernaum. And, and we can see they're thinking here, what, you have, what, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus' point is that their problem was not lack of evidence, but the hardness of their hearts. Let me repeat that. It wasn't lack of evidence. Jesus had given evidence. But the problem was the hardness of their hearts. They had known Jesus all his life. He had never told a lie. He had never been in trouble. In fact, everybody liked Jesus. So why would they not believe him now? Why would they not believe him now? 
And the second application that Jesus gives is a rebuke. Jesus said to them, I say no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, in verse 24. And sadly, the ones who knew him best did not receive what he had to say. Kind of reminds me of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11, where it tells us he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. If you are familiar with Jesus, you must be especially careful to apply his teachings to your own heart. The people of Nazareth were not receptive to Jesus' teaching, in part because they were too familiar. They were overly familiar with Jesus. Is not this Joseph's son? You've heard, that, you've heard this proverb, isn't it? Familiarity can breed contempt. They had known Jesus when he worked in in his father's carpentry shop, but now they couldn't conceive him as the promised Savior and Lord. There's application here for us here this morning. If you grew up in the church as a child, or if your parents were Christians, or if you've been in church for years, it's very easy to grow so familiar with spiritual truth that you don't let it affect your own heart. And you begin thinking, well, you know, repentance is something the the non-Christians need. The gospel is not for me. The gospel is for unbelievers. I'm a good person. Salvation and the tender mercies of God, oh, how boring. Let's talk about something else. I've heard that before. Before you know it, you're right there with those lukewarm Laodiceans that we learnt about in Revelation, isn't it? And you lose the sense of gratitude that ought to flood your, your soul when you consider God's abundant grace. It becomes boring for you. Protect your heart against that. We see the third application that Jesus gives was by way of two illustrations. And Jesus talked of two well-known and much-loved prophets. He talked about Elijah and Elisha. And the point of both stories really is the same. Israel was at a low point of idolatry and, and moral corruption. And God told Elijah to pray that, that it would not rain, that they would not receive rain. And of course, as a result, there was a famine over all the land. And that meant that Elijah himself needed food. He needed sustenance. And God could have picked any one of many widows in the land as the place to send Elijah for sustenance, but he didn't. Instead, God sent him to a widow in Sidon, a Gentile, far away from Israel. God sent Elijah to save a Gentile woman who was in tremendous need. And her physical poverty matched her spiritual poverty. She was in bondage. She was blind. She was oppressed. And we know the story, and I hope you do. She ended up trusting God. And she was saved. Her eyes were opened. And Jesus' point was that if his listeners refuse to abandon their self-righteousness, 
and acknowledge their desperate spiritual need, they could not be saved. And there's a similar story in Elisha. Here in Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel whom God had not cleansed, who God could have cleansed. But instead, God chose to, to heal a pagan man by the name of Naaman the Assyrian. He was a general in the army of, of Israel's enemy. Remember that. Naaman was not only a Gentile, but he was a leper. He was a leper. And lepers were considered the, the lowest of the low in their, in their culture. So Naaman was a double outcast. And Jesus' point is unmistakable here. God's salvation is for all who see themselves as spiritually poor prisoners, blind and oppressed, regardless of nationality or condition. It didn't matter if you were an Israelite. God's grace was for all. And it was at this point, it was because of these stories that the religious crowd in Israel started getting offended. Even though it came right out of their own scriptures, even though Jesus was reading from Isaiah, they were offended when Jesus brought up the stories from Elijah and Elisha's ministry and applied it to them. How can you be telling us about Gentiles? We are Israelites. You can start to, to get the picture here, isn't it? These Israelites were, were self-righteous people. They were arrogant. They thought they didn't need God's grace. They didn't think they, they needed to repent of their sins. They didn't even consider themselves sinners. And here we see the result. Here's the result, my last point we see in verse 28 to verse 30. Suddenly this happy homecoming crowd turns into a mob lynching. And their plan is to take him out to the edge of town and, and literally throw him off a cliff. And Jesus let them lead him as far as the brow of the hill to reveal their, their murderous intentions in their hearts. And then, again, we just have to imagine the scene, whether this was miraculous or simply by the power of his commanding person, Jesus just walks away from them. But through this, they should have seen that they were not basically good people at all. Their hearts revealed how sinful they were, that they were murderous people intending to kill him. They were good as long as no one confronted their true heart condition. But as soon as Jesus exposed them for what they really were, they rose up to destroy him. Instead of being convicted of their sins that, had, that they had uncovered and discovered in these stories about Elisha and Elijah, what did they decide to do? The opposite. Let's protect ourselves. Let's protect ourselves. They're not going to admit what their hearts are like. And the irony is that even though they saw themselves as basically good religious people, they get so angry at Jesus' convicting message that they left their worship service in a rage with the intention of murdering him. They are not going to grapple 
with the sin that has been revealed in their hearts. They are not and they will not repent of their sins. They are not going to allow the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to show them what they are really like. No. They're not going to get rid of the sin in their hearts. They want to get rid of Jesus. They want to get rid of the the messenger. They want to ignore their sin. They want to protect their sin. We're not going to have anybody speaking truth into our lives. Folks, maybe you wouldn't grab Jesus today and take him out to the outskirts of the town and and try and kill him if, if he were preaching. But if Jesus is convicting your heart, and if he's ever convicted your heart from the preaching of the word, and he has shown you your sin, how have you responded? That's the question here this morning, isn't it, folks? How do you respond to the truth of the word of God when it reaches your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you reject that conviction? Do you try and hide your sin? Do you try and cover it up? Well, if that's the case, you're no different from the crowd that tried to kill Jesus that day. The main thing that keeps religious people from accepting Jesus is their pride. It's their pride that that hinders them from seeing their true condition in, in God's eyes. Remember, we can justify our sin in our eyes in any way we want, isn't it? But how does God see your condition? Remember the church in Laodicea was there. And their assessment of themselves was, I am rich and have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. That was their assessment. But what was God's assessment? Remember in Revelation 3.17, God said you are wretched and you are miserable and you are poor and you are blind and you are naked. But the good news is, When God opens your eyes to see your true condition before Him, that's the first step toward receiving the good news. If you know that you're destitute and someone offers you a million dollars as a free gift, that's good news, isn't it? But if you know that you're spiritually poor and God offers freely to forgive all your sins through Jesus Christ, that's the greatest news in the whole world, isn't it? But if your eyes are blind to the truth, then that's just nonsense to your ears. That's just ho-hum, I'm bored, let's talk about something else. Let me remind you of the good news, folks. Jesus says He's come to proclaim good news to the poor. That must mean that there are some poor that need good news. He says he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. That must mean that there are some people here that are captive that need to be liberated. He says he's come here to give sight to the blind. That must mean that there are some good church-going folks that are spiritually blind. He says he's come to give liberty to those who are oppressed. That must mean that there are some who are under the oppressive bondage of the world, the flesh, the devil, and they need to be set free. 
But there are a lot of people that are working really hard to believe that they're free when they are not. Some people are so committed to acting as if they're free when they know that they're not, that they're ready to kill people who tell them that they are sinners, that they are not free. And that's what happened to Jesus. Now, here's the good news. Jesus said he had come as the anointed of the Lord to proclaim good news to people who are sinners like this, who are blind and poor and oppressed, captive and sinful. But until we admit who we are, until we admit our need for grace and the gospel, we will play the game of denial. We play the game of blame shifting. Or if we play the game, and aren't we all played with this, folks? If we play the game of appearances, then we miss the gracious hand of Jesus reaching out to us with the good news. And you say, well, I hear what you're saying, Pastor. Everybody around me, we're all about appearances. We're about looking better than we are. And there's no way that I'm going to own up to the deep, deep sins of my heart. Well, folks, if you do that, you're cutting yourself off from the good news. You're cutting yourself off from this free offer of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a churchgoer, but you're cheating on your wife. You're a churchgoer, but alcohol and prescription drugs or illegal drugs are, are wrecking your, your world. But you're going to keep up the appearances. You're a churchgoer, but you're addicted to pornography. You're a, you're a churchgoer, but you are worshiping at the altar of, of money or ambition or, or pleasure or a thousand other things. But you are committed to keeping up the appearances. You cut yourself off from the gospel. And Jesus shows up at church this morning. And he says, I came not so people could continue in their sin, continue to cover up their sin, and to look, God, to look good. I came to deal with those sins. And I came with good news for those sins. My good news is, is not get yourself right and, and, and fly away. My news is not... You're sinning, so stop what you're doing and be a good person. My news is not, here are nine things that you need to do to get yourself right with God. My news is, I'm here to do something about where you are. If you're willing to be honest. If you're willing to be honest. Have you ever seen a, a little kid trying to get chocolate off his shirt? His clean T-shirt or school shirt. What does he do? He grabs a, a rag and, and goes to the kitchen sink and gets some water. And then they, they start rubbing it, isn't it? They start trying to clean it. And it works, doesn't it? No. <laughs> it just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And it gets bigger and it gets bigger. And when the mother walks into the room, well, we all know what happens after that. But there are a lot of us that are trying to do exactly the same thing with our sin. To try and fix it up. You think you can 
clean it up. You think you can get that outfit clean. You can be ready to stand before the Lord. And the sin just gets bigger and bigger and you become more self-righteous and more arrogant. You see what Jesus is saying to you this morning. He's saying that kind of stain, that sin only comes out with one thing. And it comes out with my blood. Not with your works, but with my blood. And here is what I'm going to do. Churchgoer, if you're cheating on your wife, because my father wants to save you from your sin, because he sets his love on you, and because I love you, I'm going to ask my father to treat me like someone who is cheating on their wife. How does God do that? Well, he's just, isn't it? And he judges sin. And Jesus takes the punishment for our sin on our behalf. He pays for the sin that you should have paid for. Maybe you're abusing alcohol and drugs. Jesus goes to his father and he says, punish me with what sins he deserves to be punished with, with what judgment he deserves Jesus is saying, I'm going to absorb what your sin deserves so that in my blood you are really washed and made clean. Your sin is not going to be hand washed. I'm going to pay your full debt. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see that in Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You cannot clean your life up and then stand before God and say, Okay, God, here I am. Now I'm ready. Take me to heaven. It doesn't work like that, folks. Jesus is saying, don't play games with your sins. Appearances. Appearances before your contemporaries are not going to stand you before my Father. My blood is. My blood is sufficient. So here's what you do. You run to me because I'm here to proclaim good news to wretched hypocrites. Wretched hypocrites who for the first time in their lives have realized that they are not right with God, that there is sin ever before them, that they will stand before a holy God who will judge them for their sins. They cannot cover up their sins, no matter how hard they try. And they need the blood of Christ. Jesus says, I'm here to give it. And my friends, it's that message that made the synagogue in Nazareth hate him. Why? Because they... They couldn't bear the shame. They couldn't bear the humiliation of admitting who they were and what they needed and what he was ready to give them. And don't join them. Don't follow that crowd. I beg you, do not imitate their response. Let's be a congregation that's ready to be done with appearances. Let's be a congregation that's ready to admit 
who we are and admit how much we, we need Jesus. And let's find grace that we never dared hope existed, offered to us freely in Christ. And I guarantee you, He will do this for you. Listen to what He says. He has anointed me to proclaim good news. Why? Because He was going to the cross. Because He was going to shed His blood on that cross so that the good news would be real for all of us. And it is that, folks. It is good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news this morning. Lord, I'm sure there are people in this room who, who are responding in one of two ways, just like the people did in the synagogue there. Oh, that's a good message. Or, no, I don't understand it. What good news? Lord, it's not good news to our ears until we understand the bad news. And just as we've seen, Lord, the problem from the problem is that we are not willing to, to see the bad news. We're not willing to admit this pride that is in our hearts that keeps us from the grace of God. The problem, we're not willing to admit that we are sinners. So, Lord, I pray that you would please change the hearts of those who are responding like that this morning. And that you would open their eyes, that you would help them to see, that you would help them to hear, that you would help them to embrace this gospel of good news. Thank, Lord, we're so thankful that you did come to proclaim this, but to fulfill it as well on the cross. And for those who have received you as their Lord and Savior, may we live our lives in light of that wonderful truth that you are our Lord and you are our Savior and you are our King. Lord, especially this week as we meet our non-believing friends, may they see the gospel of light in us. May they see the hope that we have in us. And may we point them to heaven amidst all of their anxieties, amidst all of their worries. May we help them to see that, that death has been conquered. Death has been defeated. Sin has been destroyed. And that our hope is not in the temporary things of this world, but our hope is in heaven. That you have secured for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful again, Lord, for the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would receive this again and apply it to our hearts and our lives for your glory. And that we would be done with these appearances. We would be done with playing the game. And that we would be willing to bow our knee to you. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.